0: So if you don't mind, turn with me to Luke chapter um, 15. And as you are turning there, you've heard this story plenty of times about the prodigal son. Um, it's verse, be verses 11 through 32. And as you turn there, um, I just want to pose the question. Have you ever considered, um, does God have enough grace for me? You know, and if that's you, if you ever pondered that question, um, this sermon is tailored specifically for you. Um, that God definitely does have enough grace for us, that this subject matter that I want to uh, talk about today, the thought that I want to talk about today is the grace of God. And so Luke 15, 11 through 32, because we have a lot of ground to cover, um, and I don't want to be long-winded by any means, is we want to just read verses 20 through 24, uh, the response of the father to the younger son, and then we will jump right in. So starting there in verse 20, uh, I'll be reading it in CSB. He says, so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants quick, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Verse 24, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And so they begin to celebrate. Uh, This is the word of God let us pray father we thank you for your grace your grace that is matchless that is infinite Um, God if it was not for your grace where would we be where could we be where should we be God we uh, deserve judgment we deserve to be separated from you but God in your grace you have gave us a seat at your table so that we might enjoy you forever. Uh, that, God, we, were ex- we exist for you, and so we pray for the New City family right now, that, God, they would hear your voice. Your parables are designated for those who have ears to hear, so give them ears, God, to hear. Cause their hearts to be tender, to be uh, fertile ground for the fruit of the Spirit to be cultivated and grown. God, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross so they might see you high and lifted up. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen. Amen. Scandals. Um, Our society loves scandals. In fact, there was a popular TV show um, that Kerry Washington starred Olivia Pope, and this TV show was actually called Scandal. Some of you probably have watched it or seen it or heard about it. And Kerry Washington, starring as Olivia Pope, she was um, aiming to help people with their scandalous secrets. All of us have them, right? We um, have skeletons in the closet that we want to cover up. And so this show is really designed for that purpose. She was tasked with helping people's problems go away before anyone else knew about them. Scandals. Uh, America is not unfamiliar with them. During Richard Nixon's presidency, one of the most famous scandals in all of American histi- history is the Watergate scandal. Uh, the scandal really revolved around wiretapping as Nixon's campaign operatives uh, came up with the bright idea, the, rather not even the bright idea, but the strange plan to wiretap the Democratic Party at the Watergate Hotel. And, and some of you, this it was, it was around you know, your time, but for me, um, I, didn't, I didn't know nothing about that because I was not born yet. And so as Nixon and his administration covered up this plan, he uh, was not a, unaware of the fact of what happened because he was behind covering it up. And so he was asked repeatedly, um, did he have any... Does he know anything about the situation at all? Even though he denied it, he denied any part of it, that Nixon's plan was to wipe his hands of the scandal. He didn't expose the scandal, but rather he covered up the scandal that happened at the Watergate Hotel. And as the news broke, right, millions of Americans were glued to the TV stations, and, I mean to the TV and to the radio stations, because scandals to some degree raise our heart levels. Not because we enjoyed them, but because they are intriguing to us. And then all of us remember what happened in 1998. In 1998, when the news broke, all of America witnessed um, Bill Clinton. One of the most popular uh, scandals in American history, probably more popular than the Richard Nixon scandal. And so as Bill Clinton's scandal hits the news channel, as we understand that his White House intern, Monica Lewinsky, uh, divulges the details of their, I guess you could call it, entanglement. And as we heard about these things, some of us remember the famous words from Bill Clinton, I did not have relations with that woman. But we all know he did it. Uh, We all know that his hand got caught in the cookie jar and that he was doing things in the White House that he should not have been doing, doing things that he had no business doing. Scandals. America knows them well. But there is a type of scandal that America does not enjoy. You see, we're infatuated with scandals, but... Uh, in our society, we do not love scandalous grace. In 2019, Brant Jean would extend extraordinary grace to Amber Geiger. And Amber Geiger, as some of you might be aware, but if you're not, here us a little bit of the story. Um, she was on trial in Dallas for murder, and she one day travels home to her apartment and Brant Jean's brother, Botham Jean, lived above her apartment. And so one day she uh, goes home, I guess after her shift from work. She is a police officer by trade. And then as she is going home, she enters into uh, the apartment above. She enters into the wrong apartment. She thought it was her apartment, but she enters into Botham Jean's apartment. As he is sitting there at the table eating cereal, she shoots him and kills him. And she stands trial, and she is sentenced to 10 years in prison. And there is outrage for what has happened, what has transpired. And then in the courtroom, something amazing happens. Uh, Brant Jean asked the judge, may he approach. Can he come to the stand to say something to Amber? And as he approaches, he tells Amber that he forgives her. And that he is going to extend grace to her. And he gives her a hug and he says, my only desire for you is that you will come to know Jesus. And then outside the courtrooms, there's outrage, there is anger. How could this person forgive such a senseless, violent act? On purpose or not on purpose, it doesn't matter. A life was taken. How can he forgive? How can he extend such extraordinary grace? You see, as people ask this question, as people ask why, how can he show forth the grace of God? It revealed to us that scandalous grace is something that our society has a hard time accepting. I wanted to co-host of the Breakfast Club, Charlemagne, even supports this. He says, I think forgiveness is overrated personally because some things people do are unforgivable. You see, God's grace is only scandalous to those who set limits on God's grace. And now, the scandalous grace of a lifetime, the prodigal son, a wayward boy, a rebellious son, one who is, un, who is not unfamiliar with the depths of depravity, one who is not uh, unaware of the bottom of degradation, one who realizes the end of sin, sin. This story before us makes the grace of God seem so scandalous because the Pharisees and Sadducees cannot comprehend, they cannot wrap their minds around the fact, how is Jesus associating himself with tax collectors and sinners? Those who are viewed as the scum of the earth, those who are the stepped on of society, Jesus uh, was captivating to them. The sinners, the tax collectors were drawing near to this Jesus But the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. In fact, they were complaining about grace. The Pharisees and scribes failed to understand what many of us fail to understand. We cannot set limits on God's grace. We cannot set limits on God's grace. This is what the parables reveal. This is what this parable reveals about the kingdom of God. That the grace of God expressed in the kingdom of God has immeasurable richness and depths. That there is no sin too deep. There is no sin too ugly. There is no way too far gone that for the grace of God to cover. That's the point of this parable. And so parables are an interesting thing. So Jesus has been walking. And as he's been walking, he has been captivating to the crowds. He's healing people. He's opening blind eyes. He is causing the lame to walk. People are gathered around this Jesus. Who is this man? Why is he so different than us, but so also similar to us? But not only the as the crowds, the sinners, the tax collectors gathered around this Jesus, but can't you see uh, the other crowd that is gathering around him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They hate Jesus, which is interesting for them to be so captivated by someone they hate, because the reality is Jesus is so amazing, he is so great. He is so beautiful that even those who hate him cannot help but be captivated by him. And so I simply want to tell this story. That as Jesus has been walking, he's been telling these series of parables, and he has been talking about the kingdom of God. These parables are designed for those who have ears to hear. They are designed for those who are part of his kingdom, who are part of his family, to weed out the wheat from the tares. And so he tells these series of parables. He makes his way to Luke 15 as he's been walking a long way. And he begins to start talking about the shepherd, that when a shepherd loses a sheep, would not that shepherd leave that 99 and go look for that one sheep? And when he finds that sheep, wouldn't that shepherd rejoice? And then he moves to two coins, that this widowed woman has two coins and she loses one coin, but then she flips over the furniture. She moves over the table. She looks everywhere. It's kind of like losing your car keys in the morning. It makes you go crazy, right? And so as she is navigating that, She ends up finding the coin, and she also tells her friends, I have found my coin, and she invites them over and throws a party. They celebrate, and then Jesus says, how much more does heaven rejoice when one sinner repents? In other words, when a sinner repents, heaven throws a party. God celebrates. God rejoices. So we have a shepherd, a widowed woman, Then we find ourselves that a man has two sons. Two sons. One, rule keeping, command obeying, Bible reading, consistent prayer life, serving all of his years. Another boy, ungrateful, disrespectful. How could he be This crazy, and this story takes a certain shape. The younger son approaches the father. One day he comes and he says, Daddy, I want my inheritance. And so what could be so attractive to this young son to make him want his inheritance? Well, I don't know. What would be attractive to any young person in our day and age? Pleasure. We can navigate the things that he enjoyed, that he wanted. Wine, weed, money, fortune, fame. We can go on and on. But at the core of his heart is pleasure. He wants to be pleased. He wants to, his soul to be satisfied. Because in the moment, the father is not enough. It's not that the father has not gave him the finest of life. I mean, he has all. He has everything that he could ever ask for. He's a spoiled son, probably more than, than it looks like based on the text, but he comes to his father and he says, give me the share of my inheritance. As it says in a technical sense, give me the share of your life. So he goes to the father and he says, daddy, I want what's mine. And if any of you know, in order for an inheritance to be distributed, The person that has the inheritance must what? Die. And so basically the son approaches his daddy and says, Daddy, I want you to die. Go ahead and die so that I can get what belongs to me. Can't you feel the heartbreak of the father? The parents, some of you have have children now. Some of you have raised children. Don't you know what it's like when your children say what you have for them is not enough? that they want something else, that they need something else, that your love, your provision, your care for them is not enough for them. They need to go and find something else that is more beautiful, that is more uh, uh, acceptable to their hearts and their souls. This father does something strange, doesn't he? He doesn't respond by saying, man, how disrespectful. He doesn't say, somebody go get my belt. He, did, he doesn't say any of that. He says, you want your inheritance, you want what you want, so I'm going to give you what you want. And so he divides the inheritance at that moment. The oldest son gets two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son gets one-third of the inheritance. He divides it up, and he gives it away, and he allows for the son the younger son to walk away. The younger son departs and he leaves and he goes to a faraway country, as the text says, a distant country. You see, sometimes God will allow you to walk away. Sometimes God will say, You want what's out there in those streets, or let me you know, paraphrase it, You want those things that are out there in the world then go get it because the father wants us to realize God wants us to realize that there is nothing out there in this world that is for us, that there is nothing out here of this age that belongs to us, that he does not provide us. Have you been there when you've departed from the father, when you walked away, when you told the father that you need something else, that this relationship is better than him? That financial success is better than him? Have you been there when you've told God, you've put your finger in the face of God and say, God, your grace is not enough. Your mercy is not enough. Your love is not enough. Within this point of the story, some of us have experienced it. We know what it's like to journey to a faraway country, far away from home. And so the younger son goes, and he's far away from home. He has no protection, all of his protection, all of his provision. He's picked it up, and he's taken it to a faraway, distant country. He's charting his own path, and we can imagine some of the things he was doing. He was engaged in, it appears, all type of sexual immorality. I'm sure that you would have him at the nightclubs, and he's buying drinks for everyone, that he has a lot of money, and everyone is uh, gathering around this young man who has it all. That he has the, the, the new Jordans on his feet. He has all of these things that are what our society wants and loves and clamors for. He has all this fortune. He has all of this money. And so he has all these friends. But then there becomes a moment in the story where he begins to lose it all. He becomes impoverished. And guess what? Not only is he impoverished when it comes to money, when it comes to material things, but he is impoverished when it comes to relationships. Because those same people that wanted him when he had it all, are those same people have, that have deserted him when he has nothing. That's how you know young people who are true friends or not. Are they with you when you have it all? That doesn't make them a true friend. Are they with you In the trenches, are they with you in the valley? Are they with you when you have nothing? So he's impoverished, and you would know that in the ancient Near East, a famine breaks out. And being poor, in the midst of a famine, those two things don't mix. He's poor. That's his fault. The famine, that's not his fault. But he is unprepared for the famine because he has been living in riotous living, squandering his estate with foolish living, as the word says. And he finds himself in a place where he's working for a Gentile man. He is forced to do what no dignified Jewish boy would ever imagine or dream to do. Go work for a Gentile man. You can see the Pharisees and the scribes. Can't you see them? They're angry at this point. How in the world? Why would he do that? Is he crazy? You see, not only will God allow you to walk away, but God will allow you to come to the end of yourself. He will allow you to hit the bottom. So the only place that you can look is up. So the only place that you could realize your greatest need is him, the father, his love, his joy. His peace, His kindness, His presence, His power, His provision. Can't you feel it? Can't you feel emptiness of life without the Father? Can you see the prodigal son as he has realized? He's come to a place where he is with the pigs and he wants what the pigs want and he's reaching for the pigs and even the owner slaps his hand away. You can't have that. Can you see him in his sin, how his sin has brought him to a place that he never dreamed of being? Can you see his loneliness? You see, the kingdom of God requires that we become tired of our sin. The only time you are ready for the embrace of God is when you are tired and sick of your sin. Are you tired of your sin this morning? Good. You're ready for God. You're primed and ready for his embrace, his loving embrace. And so here in this moment, there's a sudden shift. There's a sudden change and I got to move quickly, a sudden change in direction. The verse 17 says that he comes to his senses. Oh, how I wish that this morning, some of us would come to our senses. I don't know your life. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you've done this week. To to be quite frank, it really doesn't matter to me. But what I do know, if we are living life in rebellion, if we're living life apart from Christ and apart from him, that we need to come to our senses this morning. That we need to recognize that there is nothing in this world. That there is nothing that you desire in your heart. There is no pleasure that you long for that can give you what Christ can give you. That at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That you are his masterpiece. You are his workmanship created for him, by him. And your life is to exist for him and to love him and to pursue him. And so if you are in a place this morning where you or your heart is drifting away from Jesus, as the old hymn used to say, Lord, my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Long to leave the God I love. Is that, If that is you this morning, I pray for you. I plead for you to come to your senses. Don't just go through the emotions anymore. Don't just be wrapped up in religiosity to where you come to church and you go to community group. No, really evaluate your heart and see where you lie with the father this morning. See if you really are pursuing him. If your affections are for him. If your attention is drawn to him. He comes to his senses. He says, I need to go home. And when I go home, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers or make me like one of your hired workers. You see, some of us, we set limits on God's grace, not that because we don't believe God's grace saves. But we don't believe his grace transforms. You see, the prodigal son goes home. Because he understands it's at the Father's house where I belong. It's at the Father's house where grace can be activated and transform every part of my person. So he goes home. But little does he know, day by day, month by month, week by week, the Father comes out the front door and he's, he's looking down that dirt road. If y'all don't mind, I might preach myself happy in a moment, but he's looking down that dirt road and as he's looking over the horizon each week, I mean, each day, each week, each month, he's, he's looking with anticipation that uh, the, the commentators note that he is waiting for the prodigal son. He's waiting for his younger son to come down that same road that he traveled, that he departed on, that he left on, that weeks go by. Oh, that's him. No, it's not. That's not him. I don't know what that is. And then there becomes a moment in the story where the father comes out the front door, and as he's looking, as he's waiting, as he, as anticipating the arrival of his younger son, one day the younger son comes traveling down that road. He doesn't look the same. It's been some months. It's been some time. But that doesn't change the response of the father. He's been waiting for this moment. Waiting for this moment for his son to come home. And for some of us this morning, I want to remind you of who the father is. That when you leave him that when you depart from him that when you tell him he's not enough and you leave his house he's not sitting there wishing you would come home no actually he's looking out the window of heaven waiting for the moment for you to come home waiting for the moment you to come back to his house and understand that it is in his presence there is fullness of joy fullness of life fullness of grace fullness of mercy he's not looking out waiting for you to come home so he can punish you, so he can slap your hand and tell you how bad you've been and how bad you've disgraced him. No, he's waiting for the moment you to come home so that he can love you, so that he can kiss you, so that he can wrap his loving arms around you and say, I'm glad you're home. I'm glad you're home. And so as he makes it home, he says, There's my son. He meets him and he says, Hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. Go. Go 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 get the best robe. His clothes are tattered. He he's dirty. Wait wait he ain't got no shoes on his feet. Go get go get those finest shoes that I have there in the closet. Oh wait a minute he don't have no bling. I I I sent him away with some bling on his hand, but he don't have it now. So go get some bling and put it on his hand. Better yet, there's that fatted calf that we have been waiting to. Uh, Slaughter. We've been waiting to cut so that we can serve a great meal, so we can uh, uh, throw a great miraculous party. You see, Christians should throw the best parties, by the way. And so he goes and gets that fatted calf, and he brings it in, and they throw a big party. And he's, why does he throw a big party? Because he says that my son was dead, and now he's alive. My son was lost, and now he is found. You see, the point is that it takes grace for the most rebellious, undeserving, radically depraved person to enter into the kingdom of God. It takes grace, amazing grace, radical grace, amazing grace, scandalous grace. The younger son is having a party with his friend. He was dead and now he is alive. You see, there were so many people in this world that are walking around dead. They're walking around lost. It's not, they're not dead because they have an absence of life in their body. They're not lost because they cannot navigate themselves through Apple Maps or Google Maps or Waze. No, I want to suggest to you this morning, the reason that people in our world are dead and they are lost Is because of separation from the father and I want to ask you when's the last time you pray for somebody that's dead spiritually when's the last time you've labored over those who are lost in the city that you live that you occupy better yet let me get more direct when's the last time you've shared your faith with somebody who's lost because statistics show that 50% of Christians over the last six months have not shared their faith with anybody That's not to scold you. No, it's to tell you that if you have received such scandalous grace, why would you not want someone else to experience it? Why would you not want someone else to taste and see that the Lord is good? I charge you, I urge you, pray for God. Pray for God to bring people in your life that you can tell them about Jesus. Now the older brother enters the story and we're going to bring this thing home. He hears music. He hears dancing. He said, man, what the world is going on in there? I mean, I, I mean it sounds like they're throwing a full-blown party. And so he calls his servant over. Servant, what, what's going on? Why, why am I hearing all this music? He said, I thought you knew. I thought you knew. I thought you realized what was going on. He said, your brother is home. And daddy done threw a whole, I mean, your daddy done threw a party for him. I mean, Kurt, they even got Kurt Franklin in there, and he's tearing the house down. I mean, come and enjoy with us. And no, he pouts. He's angry. He is upset. He responds with anger, bitter discontentment. And I want you to see at this moment in the story that the father, just as he went to go meet the younger son, the father comes out and he meets the older son as well. He said, what's going on? Why, why, why are you out here pouting? Why are you sitting over here and not in the house enjoying all of your younger brother's friends and the fatty calf and we were celebrating. Kirk Franklin is there and we're having a, such a great time and he's just leading us and we just, we're loving it, we're enjoying it. He says that all my years, I've slaved for you. I've served you. I've obeyed you. And you've never thrown me a party. You've never cut the fatted calf up for me. Because I want you to see something. Before we blame the older brother and before we start to get upset with him, remember the younger son has squandered his inheritance. So guess whose fatted calf that, that is? Guess who ring that is? Guess whose shoes those are? It's the older sons. You didn't throw a party for me, which we know that's a lie because look how the father responds to the younger son coming home. It seems that they probably threw a lot of parties. They celebrated a lot. But no, he's frustrated. He's angry because you didn't do it for me. So he goes on his self-righteous rant. Before we judge, oh, we've been there. God, I pray every day. I go to church every week. I give my tithe faithfully. I read through the Bible every year. I got my Bible reading plan, and I'm so consistent. Can't nobody tell me nothing. I tell people about Jesus. I obey your commands, but I still haven't got that job I wanted. I still haven't gotten that house that I dream of, that I've desired. I still haven't had that child that I've been praying for for years, for months. My son, my daughter is still out there lost and they don't know Jesus. And I've been praying, I've been obeying, I've been doing all the things that you want me to do. You see, we do the exact same when we become discontent with the Father, when the Father is not enough, our default is anger, becoming bitter because He's not enough for us. And if you're not tracking with me, just as it takes grace for the most undeserving to enter the kingdom of God, it takes grace. Perhaps even greater grace for every self-righteous, command-obeying, and Bible-reading person to enter into the kingdom of God. And it takes that same grace for those to remain in the kingdom of God. Is he enough for you today? I can't answer that question for you, but I can tell you: What do you spend your time? What do you? What do you? What do you? How do you spend your treasures? How do you spend your talents? You'll find is he enough for you? You see, we should not be people who complain about grace, but we should be people who rejoice in the boundless grace. Of God. See, we don't know how this story ends. I'm at the end. I'm done. Jesus doesn't tell us how the story ends, but based on the end of Luke, we know how the story ends. You see, when the older brother should have been the one who took his two-third of the inheritance and went to help his brother who squandered the one-third of the inheritance... Instead, he chose to lack mercy. He chose to lack grace because he believed that his younger brother was beneath the grace of God. You see, in Luke 15, the older brother was too good, was too righteous, was too holy to extend grace and mercy to the younger son. He did not want the scum of the earth, his own brother, to receive the love of the father. But hey, I came to tell you good news this morning. But in Luke 23 and 24, the older brother did come down. The father looks at the son and he says, I know you didn't do anything wrong. I know you don't deserve to be slain. I know it will cost you your life, but you have younger brothers and sisters that are lost and need to be found. I have sons and daughters who are dead and need to be made alive. I need you to leave the glory of heaven and come to the ghetto of earth. And Jesus says, I'll do it, father. He says, he says I'll, I'll come in the likeness of man. I will humble myself and become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. They, don't, they put a crown of thorns on my head, and they put, uh, beat me with a cat of nine tails, and they put nails in my side. I, I was wounded for your transgressions. I, I was crushed for your iniquities. It was the will of the father to crush me. Oh, this is why we cannot put limits on the grace of God. This is why we cannot put restraints on the grace of God because it was a sinless, spotless lamb of God who came down. That that's why this morning you've entered into the kingdom of God. That's why this morning you have hope to be transformed by the radical, scandalous grace of God. Because that sin you've been struggling with for many years, God says, give it to me. That bitterness that you have in your heart, God says, give it to me. That anger that you have been holding on to, God says, give it to me. That impatience that you struggle with every single day, God says, give it to me. Because God's grace cannot be limited because his grace not only saves, but it transforms. And the question is, are you going to set limits on it, his grace? Or will you trust that his grace can reach the lowest of people? And it can take you and make something out of you that you could never make yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your boundless mercy and how you have given us much grace. God, as we ponder, as we worship, lead us to your throne. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.